Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. He is worthy. Amen. 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 I know that you're seated, but I'm going to ask you to stand again. Uh, Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. And we are going to begin reading in verse 1, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. When you got it, say so. And it says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance. And as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore... God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we say Jesus Christ is Lord. We declare that this morning with sincere hearts. Jesus, you are Lord. We praise you. We worship you and we honor you. And we ask God that you would speak to us from your throne today. That you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church. That you would enlarge in our hearts with a greater understanding of who you are. That you would fill us with not just great revelation of you, but God, that you would change us from glory to glory. That our lives would be overwhelmed with the love that you have shown us in your son. God, we pray against distractions of mind and heart. May you be glorified in these next few moments together. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone said... Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so we are continuing in our series, Indivisible. And I want to ask this question, what is it that divides us? What is it that divides us? I don't think that there is is any confusion, that there is any doubt, that there is a great division that we are experiencing in our present moment and our culture. And it's not just in the world, but it is in the church. And my question is, what is it that divides us? What is it that separates us ideologically? What is it that separates us? And some people would say it's political ideology that divides us. 
Other people would say it's race or ethnicity that divides us. And other people would say, you know what, it's religion or convictions that divide us. But here's what I would like to say. If you ask me the question, what is it that divides us, it is this. It is unwillingness to embrace absolute truth and surrender to a sovereign Lord. What divides us is an unwillingness to embrace absolute truth and surrender to a sovereign Lord. As I was reading the text, as I was preparing for this sermon, the thing that began to just echo in my spirit and in my heart is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And it's funny because Minister Hector and I, we didn't speak about what I was going to be preaching on. But if you notice the theme in worship today, it is about the name of the Lord. It is this theme that God is worthy. The name of the Lord is strong and mighty. Jesus is Lord. This is what the church should be declaring. And so when I put, when I, when I put, you know, penned and started to type the sermon, you know, I, I wrote this and thought about this. And then yesterday I opened up an article that was written and it was speaking of this, 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 this new reformation that is taking place. And just to give you a little bit of history, I mean, I know that you guys and gals in here are smart, but just to give you a little bit of history, there's something that happened years and years ago, and it's called the Reformation. And the reason why you and I, and I'm just going to say this, the reason why we're not probably Catholic or some other religion is because of a guy by the name of Martin Luther. And this guy by the name of Martin Luther, he was a monk, and he was serious about, about living holy and righteous before God. He confessed so much. I mean, he irritated his confessor because this guy was so overwhelmed with the holiness of God. And he had a revelation and understanding that the just should live by faith. And he realized that the Catholic Church was doing things that were leading people away from faith in Christ and trying to teach a works-based salvation. And so because they would not repent of their sin, because they would not embrace the absolute truth of Scripture, he nailed his, 90, his, his 93 thesis onto the door of Gatlinburg, I think it was, and, and guess what he did? He, 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 he continued to run away from the Catholic Church because they wanted to kill him. Why'd they want to kill him? Because he was calling them out for their sin. Because he was calling them out for not for rejecting God's word. And then what, what happened as a result of that is that we have the Lutheran church and this movement that began to happen. And, and it was never Martin Luther's intention to start a new church or to start a new movement. He didn't want to go away from the Catholic church. As a matter of fact, when you look at the Apostles' Creed and its original writings, it, said, it talks about what? It talks about one holy Catholic church. Why does it say that? It says that because Catholic wasn't with a capital C. It was with a lowercase c. It was the universal church is what Catholic means. But, but, but the problem was this, is that Martin Luther was trying to bring the church back to the word of God. Trying to bring the church back to God's word and what God's holy standards are. And the thing is happening today is that we are seeing another reformation. But there's a problem. And the problem is this, is that it is not a reformation to God's word, it is a reformation away from God's word. 
Let me read to you this, just some, some excerpts from this article. I won't read the whole thing, but I need you to track with me for a moment. Because as I, as I wrote the sermon and then I began to read this article, I was like, wow, man, it's, it's one thing when God speaks to you. It's another thing when there's research that is being done that actually points to the very thing that God is speaking to you, saying, hey, son, this is what's happening. This is what is going on. This is what's occurring. And, and so on last Tuesday, there was a, 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 an article that was released on research. It's from CRC, which is the culture. Research Center. You guys may be familiar with George Barna or Barna Research. And so Barna is a researcher, a statistician. He's been commenting on church culture for a long time. They do all kind of, of, of different surveys, and then they bring out what the, what the results are from those surveys. <clears throat> and so he released a survey, and it says this, is that Christians are undergoing a post-Christian reformation. A post-Christian Reformation. And unlike the Protestant Reformation, whose goal was to return to the foundational teachings of the Bible, this modern movement is one where Americans are redefining biblical beliefs according to secular values. I need you to hear that because you need to let this sink down deep into your spirit. And here, and let, let me tell you, I, I want to say this clearly, and I want to say this, man, as, as I was praying today, there's one thing that I realized, and I've realized this for a while, but one of the greatest dangers in our day is the internet. And I'm going to tell you why I say that. Because you can find all kinds of voices out there that have better media stuff than us, that, that, that are more high tech, that are more attractive, and you know what they're doing? They're speaking to your flesh in the name of God. And they are confirming ideologies that are not biblical. I heard a pastor the other day and I called him out on it. I actually got a phone call and I got blocked so I knew I was doing something right. But I heard him speaking up and he was talking for 13 minutes in a Bible study. He was going on and on and on and on with propaganda and lies and deception. Listen, we don't have time for that kind of stuff. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher of God's word. I'm not a person. I have my ideas and my thoughts about politics, but here's the deal. I am called to preach the living word of God. And when I'm doing a Bible study, when I'm preaching scripture, if I'm sitting down in my office, we're having a conversation, that's one thing. But when I am here, I have a mandate to preach the truth of God's word. And not just God's truth, but I have a mandate to be a man of truth, no matter what I'm talking about. And you as a Christian are the same way. Therefore, it is imperative of you that you do that you do righteous research before you start talking truth. Because here's the thing: there's plenty of people out there that are propagating lies, saying it's true. And you know why? Because the media said it, because Google said it, because Facebook said it, because your best friend shared it. Listen, we need to get the truth. And you better understand that the world is out there trying to deceive you. And the reason why we're going through this reformation the way that we are is because of what? Is because people are listening to the world rather than God. And preachers are too afraid to preach the truth. They're too worried about losing tithes and offerings. They're too worried about not getting likes and they're not more concerned about leaving legacy. Come on now. They're more concerned with people applauding them. They're more concerned people saying, hey, man, you got that one. No, 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 listen. I may offend everybody. I love this analogy. Dr. Tony Evans shared it. Man, it rocked my world. He said this. He said when you play, and he's using the analogy of football. He said when you have a football game that is going on, he said here's the thing you have to realize. He said that there is a war that's about to happen on that field. He said there are three teams that are on that field. He said there is the home team, there is the opposing team, and then there is the officiating team. Come on now. And the officiating team is not there 
there to placate to either one of those teams. The officiating team has a book. Come on now. The officiating team has authority. Come on now. The officiating team is there. And sometimes the home team is going to be like, thank you so much, ref. We appreciate that. Other times when the ref calls him out and says, hey, you violated a rule in the book. Come on now. Oh, they're not going to applaud them. They're going to try to argue with them. They're going to try to discourage that That was a bad call. Come on, if you ever watch, and some of y'all are like, I don't even like sports. But here's the thing. If you go and you watch afterwards, you just go on Twitter or whatever. You go somewhere, you go to ESPN after the game, and they talk about all the bad calls. Can I tell you something? We are the team of officiants, of officiants on the field. We're not called here to placate to that team or to that team. We are called to be about the kingdom. We are called to be about the truth of God's word. We are called to be a light that shines in the midst of a dark world. But let me keep on reading what he says here. He says, while the survey cannot determine if churches are failing to teach biblical truth or whether congregants are exposed to such teaching but rejecting it, the bottom line is that we are a society that has strayed far from the path of biblical truth. Did you hear that? We are a society that has strayed far from the path of biblical truth. Now, just to give you a little bit of understanding of this survey, he sur- they surveyed 2,000 adults that are professing Christians, some from evangelical, but call themselves evangelicals. The other ones would be mainline Protestants. The other ones would be Pentecostals and Charismatics. And the other ones would be Catholics. Those are the four groups that they went when they surveyed. And so they say it's maybe two or three percentage points that are off. So they, they surveyed a lot of people in order to make these, you know, these assumptions that they come up with. And so here's what he goes on to say. He said, it certainly seems, now this is scary, it certainly seems as if the culture is influencing the church more than the church is influencing the culture. It certainly seems this way that that's what's going on. The irony, now here, now here is the thing that gets me, and, and, and this is the one that, I mean, as a Christian, this bothers me. The irony of the reshaping of the spiritual landscape in America is that it represents a post-Christian reformation driven by a people seeking to retain a Christian identity. And what, what is all that? Let, let, me, let, let, me, let me unpack that a little bit. Here's what's happening. We're rejecting God's truth. We're rejecting what God says, but we still want to be called Christian. We don't want to stop being Christian. We just want a God that we can manipulate. We don't want to stop being Christian. We just want to pick and choose what truths of the Bible we subject ourselves to. We don't want to stop being called Christian. See, there's a problem with that. And and that's the problem in our culture is that we, and and this is why this thing has got me so stirred up, because in our culture, you know what we do? We allow the world to steal steal words, change definitions, change symbols. One day, a a brother was talking about his kids. His son was drawing a picture of a rainbow because his son was learning about Noah's Ark and God's covenant. And when he was doing the picture of the rainbow, the dad was like, son, you can't draw that. And he's like, but dad, this has to do with the ark. But what we've done, instead of speaking up and condemning that and saying, no, 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 you can't take these symbols. No, 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 you can't take and change and redefine words. And then Christianity is under the same thing right now, being redefined. Like, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Is a Christian really a follower of Jesus? Is a Christian really somebody who believes God's word? Or is a Christian just someone who checks off a box of their spirituality, goes to church on Sunday? Is that what a Christian is? He goes on to say this. He says, the most startling realization about this secular reformation, said Barna, is how many people from evangelical churches are adopting unbiblical beliefs. Why does this matter? 
Because we've heard a lot of negative stuff about evangelicals, especially white evangelicals. But here's the thing that we have to realize is that long before evangelicals were a voting block, you know what they were? They were known as the people who were about evangelism who were holding the Gospels as truth, who were holding God's word as highest authority. Believe it or not, they were the ones that were saying, the Bible says this, so we should live this. Amen. That's the reason why you go and you look at the evangelicals of the United States. You, you, you look at them, uh, and, and, they, and they're doing what? They're calling our government to reform immigration. Why? Because they believe what the Bible says about immigration. Therefore, they're saying, hey, let's reform immigration the right way. When they look at injustice in our, in our, in our cities and our streets, guess what the evangelicals do? They rise up and they say, hey, guys, we need to be biblical about the way we do this. When we talk about marriage, the evangelicals say marriage has a specific definition and here is the biggest issue that we have is that today you hear people saying oh there's no such thing as a biblical worldview that is a lie straight from the pit of hell y'all that is one of the hey, listen if anybody tells you that there is no such thing as a biblical worldview you need to let them know listen that is a lie straight from satan i'll say just like jesus did satan get behind me because there is a way that believers are supposed to believe come on now there is a way that believers are supposed to view the world. Think about it now. If I'm looking at, if I'm looking at my marriage, if I'm, if I'm, there, there is a biblical way to view marriage, is there not? There is a biblical way to view parenting, is there not? There's a biblical way to view being an employee, is there not? There's a biblical way to view work, is there not? See, there's all this biblical worldview, and you have all of these garbage, faux, fake theologians talking about, oh, there's no such thing as a biblical worldview. It's a lie. Evangelicals used to hold the line for that stuff, but guess what is happening? Evangelicals are starting to say, oh, man, you know, we're getting too much pressure. We're, 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 getting, we're, we're getting too much flack, and so now, all of a sudden, here's what is happening. Evangelicals have traditionally emphasized the importance of seeing the Bible as the infallible, inerrant word of God. Now, check this out. However, 52% do not believe in objective moral truth. So the majority, or at least, if we'll give the two percentage points, at least half of evangelicals do not believe that God's word is authoritative. Listen, if God's word is not authoritative, shut the podcast off. If God's word is not authoritative, leave the building. If God's word is not authoritative, what do you, what, what do you want to be a Christian for? This word has nothing for you. You see, my life is dictated. Your life should be dictated by what? Not a man, not an organization, but God's word. See, because guess what? Men, organizations, they fall short. You know what I pride myself in? Being a person who falls short. Hello. <laughs> That's what I pride myself in. I pride myself in being imperfect. I pride myself in being a person. I'm joking. You know that. But here's the point. The point is I'm not like, yes, I'm just imperfect. I'm going to live on hold. No, I want to live righteous. I want to live for Christ. I know what God requires of me. I know what God has called me to do. But here are the facts. The facts are that we have a church that is giving in to the pressures of worldly worldviews, of secular worldviews. We have a church that is giving in to ideologies that are not biblical. Barnes says this, this is a radical and critical 
departure from the traditional teachings and biblical reliance of evangelicals. If God's word is not true, if God's word is not the highest authority, if God's word is not trustworthy, we need to close the doors of the church, y'all. But you know why we're here? Because we believe in God's word. Because we believe God's word holds the authority in our lives. We believe that God's word has the answers. We believe that God's word directs us. So I want you to think about this this morning. A divided church, which we see all over the place, is a, church, is a result of a people who have stopped declaring Jesus is Lord. A divided church is the result of a church that is of a people who have stopped declaring Jesus is Lord. Let me tell you what I mean by this. I remember having a conversation one day with someone who I love dearly, who I pray that God would save them, who I pray that God would reveal himself to them. I pray they're listening to either the podcast or online somewhere, and they hear this. But here's the thing. We had a conversation one day, and I asked a question to them. Have you committed your life to Christ? Have you made a commitment to the Lord? And the, and, and the person said, oh, yeah, I did that back in, you know, when I was like 10 years old in a backyard Bible school. And for some reason, they thought, well, I already did that once, so I'm good to go. It is not about saying Jesus is Lord once, and that's it. It's about saying Jesus is Lord always. Think about, think about your life for a moment. Just, just for a moment, just think about your life. Think about what it would be like if you said, Jesus, you are Lord Think about the church. Where would we be if we would say continuously, Jesus, you are Lord? You know what we divide? We divide because we don't want to say Jesus is Lord. We don't want to continue to say that. We don't want to continue to live that truth. And so I know I've, I've already preached the whole sermon here, but here's what I want you to hear. First, first point I ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, a unified mind requires humility toward others. A unified mind requires humility toward others. That's what I want to talk about today, a unified mind. Unified in mind. We have to be unified in mind. So what does Paul say here? Paul says this in verse 1. He says, therefore, in verse 1, chapter 2, he says, therefore, and so remember, Paul has already talked about his whole incarceration. He's talked about people who are preaching the gospel out of false pretense. He talked about, if you go back and you just look at verse 29 in chapter 1, it says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, check this out, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You hear that? We don't like that, do we? Hold on a second. It's been granted to you. Like it's a blessing to suffer. Come on now. It's a bless. Hold on. He says, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ to suffer, to suffer for him, but also to suffer for, to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. And so Paul says, therefore, because of everything that I've already said here, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Look what he says. 
He says, this is the consolation. This is what brings me joy. Can I tell you one of the things that pleases God? We're a church that lives to please the Lord, right? That's what we're called to do. That's our, that's our mission or our vision to please the Lord in everything that we do. One of the things that pleases God more than anything else is when the church is unified. And can I tell you what else it does? When the church is unified, it also brings joy to the heart of leaders. You know how frustrating it is to lead a divided people? Come on now. <laughs> you, yeah, you, you, ever, you, you ever dealt with like a group of kids, a group of children, right? And, 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 and one of them wants to be over here, and one of them wants to be over there, and you try to bring everyone together, and they don't want to do it, and one wants to eat this, and one wants to eat that. Man, the most frustrating stuff, whether you're a parent, uncle, aunt, grandmother, grandfather, whatever, you know what it's like to have that frustration of trying to bring people together. <laughs> Imagine you do it with a bunch of adults and have access to the internet. Hello. <laughs> that everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got, a, got, got an understanding of this. And, 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 and we're trying to bring unity. We're trying to walk in unity. And Paul is like, listen, if there is any consolation, right? He's talking about, man, let joy be in my heart. And he tells them how this happens. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, Having the same love, being of one accord of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Because what does Paul say? The first thing is, if we're going to be unified in mind, we have to have humility towards others. Suffering, false teaching, in-house disputes can all lead to division unless, hear me now, all of those things can lead to division. When you start suffering, you start to feel some kind of way. Go, when, when, if you're going through hardship, you know how it is. You know, you're going through a difficult situation. You start doubting God. You start doubting people. You get upset because folks are like, I'm going to pray for you. Be like, yeah, you ain't praying for me. Come on now. I mean, I mean, just keep it 100, right? Like, oh, yeah, you prayed for me. Sure, you prayed for me, right? And like, well, God ain't answering your prayers. But, you know, anyway, I mean, we, we go through all kinds of stuff, do we not? I mean, this is what happens to us. <clears throat> go through suffering, go through hardship, go through difficulty. False teaching, oh, man, false teaching is bombarding the church. We used to think that the false teaching was just prosperity gospel. No, there's all kind of false teaching that is just infiltrating the church. Because somebody's got a doctor by their name or somebody has pastor or bishop or elder or whatever by their name. All of a sudden, they are the person of truth because they tickled something inside of you. All of a sudden, that, wait, wait a second, wait, 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 wait. Is that truth or did you just have an itch? All of these things can create division unless, unless we surrender to the Lordship of Christ on an ongoing basis. It's an ongoing practice. When I'm suffering, Jesus, your Lord. When false teaching starts to creep in, Jesus, you are Lord. When in-house debates come, when difficulty happens, Jesus, you are Lord. He might have offended me. She might have bothered me. Whatever it is, but Jesus, you are Lord. And because you are Lord, I'm going to love your family. I'm not going to divide from your people. I'm going to walk together with them in truth. See, here's the thing. God doesn't call us to absolute uniformity. In other words, God doesn't want every single person to dress exactly the same, to think exactly the same on every single thing. God doesn't. Listen, every one of us in this room, you, you and I know we are all wired differently. 
God doesn't call us to absolute uniformity because we're different. We're supposed to celebrate diversity by walking in unity around the gospel. We are supposed to walk in unity. We are supposed to be unified with others. So how are we supposed to be unified? Paul gives us three things. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Unity of mind, unity of love, and unity of purpose. He tells them to be of one, be like-minded, to have the same love, to be of one mind, to be of one purpose, to be on one accord. He tells them to be unity of mind, to have your mind unified, your thoughts unified, your attitude unified. That's really what it's about. It's about having an attitude that is unified, that we want to walk in truth. That's what we're supposed to do as followers of Christ. We are supposed to be unified in love because of the love of God that has been poured in our hearts, because we understand what Jesus has done, because we understand that, then we are unified in love and we are in one accord. We are on one purpose. We are in one purpose together. We are on the same mission together. That is what is supposed to happen. And while we differ in gifting, that's the other thing. You and I have been gifted differently. I'm gifted as a preacher, as a prophetic voice in the church. That's how God has gifted me primarily. There's other secondary gifts, but primarily that's what I'm called to do and you may be gifted in different ways and so you may not see the importance of preaching so much or teaching so much well I see the importance there you see the importance of doing other things wait a second we should all come together for what to fulfill the purpose of God to fulfill the purpose of God, to fulfill what God wants us to fulfill. We are different in experiences. We're different in our burdens. When Jesus is Lord, here's what happens. We acknowledge that he's the leader of the church. We acknowledge that he is the head of his body, and we acknowledge that he is the captain of the mission that he is sending us all out into. That's what we do when we recognize Jesus is Lord, when we surrender to his lordship. That's the reason why we're able to walk in unity. I love this because Jesus himself, he says something in the book of John chapter 13, and this is so important to us having humility towards others. John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35, Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another. Let's just pause there. Love one another. Do, 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 you, do you love one another? Oh, yeah, I love you, but I don't want to be around you. That means you don't love me. I'm not, listen, I'm not talking about, you know, because, you know, we get extreme and be like, oh, well, what are you saying, Bishop, if I'm abused? Listen, I'm not talking about abuse. Listen, here. I'm talking about just regular relationship with folks. I'm talking about people that you may disagree on, whether it's political, you may disagree on, on, on dispensationalism. If you know what that is, great. If not, don't worry about it right now. You know, you may disagree with folks on things, right? Like, you know, should we do fast songs, slow songs? You know, the other day, you know, somebody asked me about, you know, hymns, you know. I mean, we may disagree on stuff, but, man, do you love me? Do you love me? Because I love you and I want to be around you despite the fact that sometimes, glory to God, I can't stand you. Hallelujah. That's just factual. I mean, listen, if we're going to keep it real, let's keep it real, right? Like there are sometimes you cannot stand me, and I get it. Sometimes you don't want to talk to me. Sometimes you send me the voicemail. Sometimes you ignore my text until you're ready to come in. It, it happens. It happens, y'all. That is, but, but, but that doesn't mean that I don't love you. That doesn't mean that I don't, I don't want to be around you, man. You're my brother. You're my sister. Jesus said, I give you a new command. You're supposed to love one another. But he also goes on. He takes to the next level. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Let me ask you a question. How did Jesus love you? So let me ask you a question. Are you dying for your brothers and sisters? Are you dying for your brothers and sisters? Are you laying down your life to love them the way Jesus loved you? 
That's the kind of love Jesus is talking about. Love each other as I have loved you. He, he, I, I, love, I love the way Jesus communicates because he doesn't leave it open for interpretation. He didn't say and love one another and then move on to another topic. No, no, no. He makes sure that he unpacks it clearly for us. And he goes on and says this. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You ever notice how confused the world is about who's following Jesus and who's not? But see, when we're sacrificially loving one another, selflessly loving one another, instead of selfishly loving one another. Bishop, how can you selfishly love someone? You love someone when it's okay for you. You love someone when it's a benefit for you. But once the benefit is out, psh, whatever. Once you can't deal with them anymore, well, you know, it's, it's all good. I'll find someone else. I'll find another group. See, we're supposed to love one another. See, th this is about humility. And what humility does, humility isn't about putting ourselves down, but it's about lifting others up. Paul says to esteem others better than yourself. That's what Paul communicates. That's the second thing that I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. is say a unified mind looks to imitate the humility of Christ. A unified mind looks to imitate the humility of Christ. Now, I, I, for those of you that were here a couple of weeks back when we started this series, I read a whole bunch of verses for you. And I was like, these are your memory verses. And it was probably like 10 verses, and you guys were like, Bishop is crazy. So because I love you, hallelujah, I'm going to give you one verse to remember. For this whole series, one verse. And it is verse 5. Look at what verse 5 says here. You can look at your Bibles. Verse 5 says this. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Another translation says it like this. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So I want you to, I want you to grasp that. That what is most important in the book of Philippians, what is most important in the life of the believer is that we adopt a mindset, that we adopt an attitude, that the same mind that was in Christ is in us. Because that's what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. What I, what I think is that there is probably no portion of scripture that so clearly explains the incarnation, the death, and the exaltation of Christ. And when I say clearly, it doesn't mean that there's not some stuff that's tough to understand. But there is a clear portrayal here of what Jesus actually does. And here's what I would say, is that the number one goal of the follower of Christ is to maintain the mind of Christ in all matters of faith and practice. Are you here? The number one goal, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, the number one goal for you is that you maintain the mind of Christ in all matters of your life, in every area of faith and of practice that you seek to be like Christ. And so there's a version that I want you to see as we, as we look at these verses 5 through 8 here. And it says this, it says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. This is the Christian Standard Bible, by the way. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Now, I want you to just see what the, what the writer is saying here because this is very important. Jesus existed in the form of God. Before Christ came to this earth, before he became a man, Jesus was God, eternity past. It's very, very important for us to grasp, to have the mind of Christ. And then it goes on to say that he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Some of your versions say as something to be grasped, something to be held on to. 
And what, what, what he realizes this is that he's, as we're looking at the, what, what is going on here, the first thing that we have to understand is that Jesus was God. He was eternal in his existence, holy in his nature, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and yet he saw something of more value. Now, just pause with me for a moment. Now, you think about yourself. You in a glorified state. You comfortable. Everything is all good. You have no needs at all. Every one of your needs is met, and you are good to go. Is anything. Some of y'all are living for that day. Come on now. It's called retirement, glory to God. <laughs> well, you have saved enough, you've worked enough, and you can do whatever you want with your life. And then imagine somebody calls on you and says, hey, man, I need you to come, not back to the position that you used to have. I need you to come to the lowest position you could ever have in this company and start working again to help other people. Some of y'all be like, well, let me pray about that. <laughs> let, let, let me pray on that. I, I'll get back to you. Give me a week or something. <laughs> and you would go back and you would start weighing and measuring and you'd be like, man, I don't know, Lord. This is great. What does Jesus do? Jesus saw something that was of more value than the glory that he had. He saw something that to him, in his estimation, it isn't that it was more glorious than him. It isn't that it was more valuable than him. No, I am saying he saw something that had more value than his position. And what does the scripture go on to say? It says in verse 7, instead he emptied himself. That word, that, that, that word emptied himself, that's the word kenosis. It, it, means, it, it means that he, that, that, that he literally, he denied himself. He divested himself of something. Jesus comes down to this earth, and what does he do? He emptied himself. By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he did what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. So the first thing we know is that he was God in a glorified state. He saw something that was of more value to him than staying in the glorified state. And he does what? He empties, he empties himself. He divests himself. He denies himself, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. He denies himself those things. And here's where it gets confusing because this is what, is, what, what, is the, what the incarnation is all about. It is about God becoming man, which is, which is way beyond our pay grade to ever fully grasp and understand. But here's what we have to realize. What we have to realize is that Jesus divests himself. He denies himself certain things in order for what? In order to put on flesh, in order to become a servant, in order to become a savior. He comes to this earth fully God, fully man, same time, really tempted, really experiences what you and I experience, really goes through what you and I go through. And then it says what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The humility of Christ is seen most clearly in his kenosis, in his emptying himself. But it is also seen most clearly in the cross. See, here's something that we do often. When you look at the movie The Passion of the Christ, if you've seen that movie, you, you see the, the brutality of what it meant to be scourged, what it meant to be crucified. 
And that should compel our hearts when we think about what it was that Christ suffered physically for us. But I want you to understand what he suffered emotionally for us. What he did, he suffered in a way that was the most shameful type of death. The shame of the cross is what Jesus experienced for you and I. The shame of dying as the most reprobate, the worst of sinners is what Jesus did. You know, you can't be as graphic, right, and actually have Jesus hanging there on a cross naked. But trust me, he's hanging on a cross naked. He is there with the worst of sinners. But here's why this is so shameful. Because he did not deserve it. He was not guilty. See, it is one thing when you have broken laws. It is one thing when you have done something wrong. But here's what takes it to the next level. He was God. The shame of the cross is what should grip our hearts. In the greater picture of things, the shame of the cross is greater than the pain of the cross. What Jesus experienced by coming from glory, putting on flesh, living a perfect life, and then being treated as the most vile of sinners, the shame of the cross. And you know what the scriptures command us? Our memory verse is, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus continued to lower himself so he could elevate us. He became dirt to save dirt. He became like the lowest to save the lowest. He became a curse to save those who were accursed. The book of Deuteronomy says something, and this is the Jewish law. And so this will show you the shame of what Jesus went through. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, it says this. It says, anyone who is hanged is cursed of God. Think about that for a moment. See, for you and I, it's like, oh, wait, a, wait a second. Anybody who was hanged was cursed of God. And that's what it's saying about Jesus. In the eyes of the Jewish people, oh, he's cursed of God. That's why he's hanging there on that cross. The book of Hebrews tells us something that lets us know what Jesus understood. And it is this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Jesus despised the shame. He looked forward to our salvation. And so he suffered this shame and agony for us to save us and deliver us. And see, it's worth mentioning this because since the garden, you can write down Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 to 14 if you're taking notes, very important portions of Scripture. Jesus took the curse for us so that we could have the blessing of faith in Abraham. But here is what is worth mentioning. Since the garden of Eden, men have been trying to be God. Since eternity passed, Lucifer was trying to be God. But you know what God does? God becomes one of us. To save us. He becomes one of us to deliver us. He becomes the, the servant savior so we can become servant saints, so we can become sons and daughters, so we can become ambassadors and representatives of his kingdom. That's what Jesus does for us. The third thing, and I'm closing, my other two points were the longest ones, but well, there was three points there, but anyway, this, the, the third actual point, say this with me, say a unified mind 
bows to the lordship of Christ. A unified mind bows to the lordship of Christ. And we pick up the verse, and I love the way that it reads. It says, therefore, because of everything we just talked about, because of his humiliation, because of his shame, because of his willingness to put on flesh, because of his willingness to be a servant, because of his willingness to undergo the shame, the torment that we deserve, because of this, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven of those on earth and of those underneath the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, until there is one Lord, there will never be one church. Until there is one Lord, there will never be one church. We will continue to divide. We will continue to go in our own directions. We will continue to pull away from each other until Jesus is Lord. Understand that. Jesus suffered the shame. He was exalted, and now he is Lord. Jesus suffered in shame, but he rose in glory. That's an awesome thing. He has been given the name that is above every name. And the greatest desire of the Christian should be what? To live for the glory of God. Not just in words, not just in pretense, but in everything that I do, I want to live for the glory of God. I want to be a man of truth. I want to be a woman of truth. I don't want to be a woman of truth. You, if you're a woman, you should want to be a woman of truth. <laughs> We want to be people of truth. Why? Because truth glorifies and honors God. Listen, if you're not sure about it, shut up. If you are not 100% sure it's true, zip it. Don't be a false witness for anyone or anything. If you know it's true, expose it. If you know it's true, bring it to the light. Because truth has to be in the forefront. We are people of truth. We are people of the book and God. You, you've heard this said multiple times. All truth is God's truth. And so we're called to be people of truth. We're called to stand up against lies. We're called to stand up against deception. Remember, church, you are not on team red or team blue. You are on team black and white. You're part of the officiating team. You are called to call balls and strikes, touchdowns, out of bounds. You Listen, you are not there to make somebody laugh or make somebody smile. You are there to be a light and a witness to the truth of God's word. That is what we're called to do, live for the glory of God. And here's the deal, every knee will bow, every knee, not some knees, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, whether willingly or unwillingly. Here's the question, have you and are you? Have you bowed your knee? Have you confessed him as Lord? And are you continuing to bow the knee? And continuing to confess him as Lord. My closing question is this. In what area of your life is Jesus not Lord? In what area of your life is Jesus not Lord? Think about what your life would be like if Jesus was Lord. I started to allude to this earlier. Imagine what your marriage would be like if Jesus was Lord. 
Some of you are a testament to what, what a marriage is like without Jesus being Lord. <laughs> Some of you are like, yep, I know that one. Well, wait a second. Do you know the other one? When you decide Jesus is Lord, as a husband, when you say, you know what? She's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. When a wife says, he's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. You know what Jesus does? Jesus unifies that marriage, heals that marriage, strengthens that marriage, aligns that marriage, allows you to walk in forgiveness and love, peace and joy and righteousness because what? I am bowing my life, my marriage to Jesus as Lord. What about your parenting? If you said Jesus is Lord, what would your children look like? How would their lives be if you as a child, if you decided Jesus is Lord, how would your life look? Would you be honoring to your parents as a follower of Christ? What would happen if you said in every conversation, in every situation, in every circumstance, Jesus is Lord? That's our problem, church. We have way too many functional saviors out there and way too many false gods in our lives that function as Jesus. Listen, Jesus needs to be Lord. And so the question is that, in what area of your life does Jesus need to be Lord? Where is he not Lord of your life? I am assuming that just like me, that if you are honest, you'll say, man, is Jesus Lord? When you think about entertainment, is Jesus Lord? When you think about the things you enjoy to do, is Jesus Lord? Bow your heads with me if you would. Listen, if you're in here in this place and you know that you need to make Jesus Lord, don't wait another moment. Call upon him right now. Cry out to him right where you are and say, God, I want you to be Lord of my life. God, I want you to lead my life. God, I want you to deliver my life from my own lordship. I don't want to be Lord anymore. Cry out to him. Call upon his name. Surrender to him. Listen, if you have an area in your life that you know that he is not Lord and you need to get it right today, repent. Call upon him. Church, we must declare Jesus is Lord at all times. Not just once in a while. Not just when everybody else is doing it. Not just when it feels good. We must declare Jesus is Lord no matter what it feels like. Father, you have been here in this room as your word has pre been preached. And I pray that I didn't mess anything up. I pray that I didn't get in your way. I just want you to be Lord, God, in this place. I want you to be Lord in my life, in every area. Not just some areas, not just the visible areas, but every area. I want you to be Lord, God. I want you to rule. I want you to reign. I want you to be glorified. Father, I pray the same for my brothers and my sisters in this place. God, may our hearts be convicted and turned toward you. May those who need to make you Lord, may they surrender to you now. 
Those who have not surrendered, may they surrender. Those who are struggling in areas, may they surrender. God, break the chains of idolatry, God. Break the chains of false gods and false beliefs and false ideologies. Break the chains of lies, God. Father draws to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name.